It's a bit spooky tonight on Narrative Live. It's so good to be with you tonight as we do episode one of The Secret Life of Elon Musk, recording it out of Africa for reasons you'll see in the next hour. I'm so glad Kerry Kukrell is here with us tonight. She is, as you know, a Silicon Valley insider, but she also has met Elon Musk. She knows a lot of the people that we may be talking about tonight, but also is very familiar with the sort of inside view of what uh, Silicon Valley is like and what that world of technology startups are, are like. So Carrie, it's so good to have you here and thank you for taking part in The Secret Life. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Now, Elon Musk is a fascinating guy. I mean, there's no other way to describe this person. Larger than life in every regard. You know, you just simply cannot say enough good things about the man. Certainly, that's what the media like to say about him. And for good reason, because there's just so many things that he does remarkably well. You know, there is no shortage of superlatives for Elon Musk. He is, amongst other things, a master tweeter. If you've followed his Twitter feed, you'll know that. He is a smart ass by all accounts because that's the way he treats his Twitter feed. But he's also, you know, the apparent creator of the, what we know today, of, of the electric vehicle. Of course, he's not the actual creator, but he's certainly the proponent of it. He's an absolute babe magnet. He has three wives. I don't know, many wives, many children too. He's quite uh, prolific that way too. He's a rocket man in that he's certainly one of the first people to reimagine how we use rockets and space. He was Time's Person of the Year. I've mentioned he's a daddy maker, but I'll say it again. Uh, He's also probably one of the world's smartest men, if you believe everything that we say about him, and we should. And then there's also the world's richest man, because who wouldn't want to add that as a list of wonderful things to be? He's also the uh, advertiser, proponent of Dogecoin, one of those cryptocurrencies, and he's a big fan of cryptocurrencies. So certainly, there's a lot to be said about Elon Musk that is very, very positive. I mean, there's certainly not been anyone like him, I would say, since uh, Steve Jobs or even maybe he eclipses Steve Jobs. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I I would say obviously he has an extremely dynamic and prolific career with you know many just skyrocketed companies that are pretty extraordinary. So yeah, it's arguably he's beyond that. Mm-hmm. Now lately he's not had the best of times. I mean, certainly by his standards, he's had rough patches before, to be sure. You know, Tesla almost didn't make it. SpaceX almost didn't make it. They did, of course. And we know that they've succeeded through the rough times that he had there. But it's not been looking so good for him lately again. And this time it's because he's facing, amongst other things, twin SEC investigations. So the Securities Commission is looking at him for uh, insider trading. And they're looking at him for another incident. I'm not quite sure what that is about. But nevertheless, he's under investigation. He's sort of gone to war with the SEC Never really an advisable thing to do, but maybe in the Elon Musk world, it's something you do. He's also gone to war with the president. He sort of talks about President Biden in almost you know, competitive terms, I would say. He certainly was upset just the other day that President Biden did not invite him to the White House. Then he was upset the week before that President Biden didn't mention Tesla as an American electric vehicle company. These are the kinds of things that you know children do in playgrounds when they don't get their names mentioned by their favorite teacher or by whatever. This is not the kind of thing that happens in presidential politics or on the world stage, except when it comes to Elon Musk, where it certainly is the case. And there's more to Elon Musk's sort of bad ride right now. And the biggest thing I would say that's really dogging him from my perspective. And I'm not an engineer. You're not an engineer. We are actually an engineer, but you're not the kind of engineer who can talk about this particular aspect of cars and electric vehicles. Is that there's this whole thing about an electric vehicle world, an EV world, about the LIDAR. The LIDAR is the way that cars are going to be able to navigate their way through the streets without crashing into things or people. And Elon Musk has bet on another piece of technology. Elon Musk has bet on technology that is very similar to the human eyesight. 
and all 17 other car companies have gone with LiDAR. And by all accounts, it's a far superior kind of technology. Again, I don't know for sure because I wouldn't know how to compare them, but they claim, the other 17 companies claim that it's much better technology for navigating around things and figuring out space and volume and whether you're going to crash into things. So Elon Musk has sort of shrugged his shoulders. He says, human beings don't have LiDAR. Why should your car? Who knows? He does seem to be isolated. And as this is one of the things that Tesla's always advertised as, as an autonomous vehicle, it will be interesting if he doesn't have the technology to actually fulfill that promise, which is so big in his initial advertising of Tesla. There's also the Hyperloop, which he finally sold to Virgin. Now, that's also turned out to be a bit of a disaster. The Hyperloop is now going to be looking only at cargo, not human transportation, because it just doesn't seem to be working for human transportation. They've cut half the jobs there. And then, you know, SpaceX is probably Musk's most ambitious thing, because not only is he providing rockets for the American spaces, NASA and what have you, but he was also intending on sending these rockets to the moon and also to Mars to establish colonies there. Now, here in this article in 2017, you can see that he's promising that we'll reach Mars by 2022. And look at the calendar today. We'll tell you that we haven't been there yet. Maybe there's still time, but it's not likely we're going to be in Mars by the end of this year. So now he's stretched that out. He says within our lifetime, you know, some people say he says 2025, but they haven't even started testing these rockets. So... You can sort of add another thing to Elon Musk's uh, characteristics there is that he's, you know, he's bold. He makes a lot of promises. He doesn't necessarily keep all of them, not 100% of them. And that sort of, you know, makes people challenged whether to invest with him and whether to believe what he has to say. And it certainly damages his credibility. Any thoughts on all of that that I just reamed out there about uh, Elon's history? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty transparent about my opinions and my thoughts and where I'm an expert and where I'm not. And I have an engineering background. I'm not designing... LIDAR or autonomous cars. I work in the medical device industry. So these aren't areas of my expertise that I can speak to technically. And another thing, I can certainly observe what everyone else does in terms of the companies that he develops and the time tracks that he's on and the things that he promises and doesn't deliver on, as well as the things he promises and does deliver on. I think those things we can all see. I'm also fairly sensitive about not commenting on his business particularly because my issues that i've had with his related circle are very outside of business itself so i'm aware that sometimes people use situations as a weapon and i'm sensitive to not doing that particularly but in general i agree with what you're saying the framing you know, that you gave, but it's something important to me to let people know that. Now, what you're talking about sounds really cryptic. We're not going to get to it in this episode of The Secret Life of Elon Musk, but we will get to it. These are challenges you've had with people in his immediate inner circle who have been on his board for a long time and been involved in his businesses for a long time. But that really is for a later episode, because right now, tonight, we're just establishing a character here and establishing who Elon Musk really is. Now, you have met him, I think, on one occasion. What's he like? I met him for just a handful of hours in Los Angeles at the Canadian consulate's home. And it was for an interview that was related to the first really exposure of his detailed plans for Mars. Yeah, so I met him then. I was connected to do an interview and it actually was, you know, really neat from my perspective because it was the first interview where someone really detailed with him the plans that he had to go to Mars, including, you know, orbital trajectories and timing and that sort of thing. Um, he was pretty quiet. He seemed pretty nice, you know, 
respectful. He was very generous. This was in the end of 2013. So he was very generous with his time. We had to get a late evening meeting to even be able to get in on his schedule. And he was extremely generous with being able to sit and chat with people for a couple hours, actually. Now, I'm particularly intrigued by Elon Musk because, you know, he's South African. I spent a lot of my early years of my life in South Africa. I sort of hung around in the same place as he did. So it certainly was an intriguing thing for me to start thinking about, well, let's investigate Elon Musk. And this is just episode one of what will be a multi-part episode. Now, when we did this before, you know, we don't know where the show is going to go. We don't know what we're going to find out. This is sort of like a, a real-time investigation where you and us get to do an investigation together. And, you know, we'll start off today by looking at his early history. The next episode might be something else, depending on what we find out from today and what reaction we have from tonight's show. So pay attention, keep us involved, and let us know where you think we should be going next with the story. But first, let me take it back to the timeline here, because it is really important to establish a good timeline on these things. And, you know, there's this critical timeline, really, which is of Elon Musk's success in business, which is quite remarkable. I mean, you know, he sort of burst into the Silicon Valley scene, if you will, I'm not sure it was Silicon Valley proper, but it was when he came up with Zip2, which is a company he came up with in 1995. He did not own it for very long because he sold it for $22 million to Compaq. It was a meta search company, and it turned out to be you know, worth a lot because he invested $28,000 in it, got $22 million out of it. It's not a bad return on investment. And then by 1999, he had started the next big journey of his life, which was into this PayPal era. He had developed an online bank called X.com. And it was doing okay. It had a few, you know, maybe hundreds, maybe even hundreds of thousands of subscribers. I can't remember, but it was quite successful. But it wasn't successful enough for the era. So across the way, up the street from them, where Elon's uh, company was, another company was being formed. And this company, I'll get the name right because I forgot it last time. Do you remember it now? The company was called Cofinity. So up the street from Elon Musk's X.com was Cofinity. And it had been started by none other than Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel and Elon Musk had a meeting. They were introduced to each other in that meeting, and they decided to join together and form a company called PayPal. PayPal is a company we all know today as being massive. It was massive for them too, because within just two years, they sold it for a lot of money. Uh, he got personally, Elon Musk got $165 million. So, you know, again, look at that, those paydays from 1995 to 2002, we went from $28,000 to $165 million. Not shy of taking risks, the man then doubles down on everything. $100 million goes into SpaceX, which is the rocket exploration company we've been talking about. And another $70 million goes into Tesla the next year. And there's also Solar City, which is another company that he was developing. So this is the kind of story we've gotten used to in Silicon Valley. The sort of rags to riches, impossible to believe. How could this possibly happen to these people? And why does it only happen to people like this? And never people you know. Why? How do these people make so much money so quickly on these startups that, you know, who knew that Zap2 or Zip2 or whatever it's called would be worth so much money that he could then project all that money from that into three more companies that were so successful? I mean, it's a success record, which is really hard to imagine, even in Silicon Valley. Yeah. No, those obviously that's remarkable. And, you know, one has to wonder both how those people might be targeted, but also how they get where they're going. <laughs> right. I mean, certainly it's not, you know, to be successful once in Silicon Valley would be a huge thing to be successful 
twice even more, but to be successful so many times is pretty unbelievable. I mean, he really has not had, even though he's had failures, he's not had any, like a cataclysmic failure. And, you know, similarly, you look at the other big guns of Silicon Valley, the Zuckerbergs and the Jobs of the world, they've also done remarkably well in that kind of way. Peter Thiel is, of course, another one. We know Peter Thiel on this show because we spend a lot of time discussing Peter Thiel's politics and his involvement with the Donald Trump campaign, his involvement in Palantir and various other sort of you know, suspect companies that you, well, I wouldn't say suspect, but maybe they're dubious in terms of their motivations. You know, these are not companies that necessarily seem to have the same kind of structures of flow as other companies do. In fact, in Palantir's case, he can't get fired as the CEO. He's permanent CEO because of the way they've structured the IPO. And that's, so there's a few things that have sort of made him, you know, sort of stand out. And Palantir is one of those companies that makes him stand out. Yeah, he's got a few things that make him stand out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, this whole like libertarian thing that came out of Silicon Valley was the last thing you would have expected. You would have expected that all these young up and coming people would have arrived in Silicon Valley and become ultra liberal because that just seems to make sense. Instead, they've become sort of reactionary libertarians and have pulled society away from liberalism, which is not sort of close to type. It's not what you'd expect of young people. No, he doesn't seem on a healthy, positive track at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that certainly doesn't. So that's Elon and Peter, and they will go into their story a little bit further, a little bit later on in the show. But I don't want to get too crowded into that story yet because there's so much more to go. But the people at PayPal, not just Peter and not just Elon, the entire structure there had remarkable success leaving PayPal. I mean, this slide sort of tells it all. It's the PayPal mafia is what they're called. And they're called that for a good reason, because they have had insane success all the way through their careers, led by people like Reid Hoffman. And of course, we mentioned Elon and Max, Max Levkin is the other founder of PayPal. Rulof Boto, we'll talk about him a little bit later on. But mm. these are all well-known people for other things other than just PayPal. And they're all being dubbed the PayPal Mafia. Now, do you know why they're called the PayPal Mafia? I don't exactly, except that I assume they're very close and they have made a lot of money and uh, they may lack boundaries. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that they have a rule unto themselves and they've certainly helped each other throughout the years. It's not like you know they've isolated by themselves. They've helped each other become very successful. Do they help other people? Well, that's certainly questionable. But amongst the companies that they're all involved in founding are YouTube, Postmates, Square, uh, Palantir, we mentioned already, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Uber, Pinterest, SpaceX, we mentioned Facebook, Evernote, Affirm, SolarCity. I mean, these are all companies that everyone uses regularly. They're very well-known entities, and they uh, really power Silicon Valley. And a lot of these same people came from working at PayPal. So it was certainly a place where a lot of talent emerged and certainly a lot of content emerged. Yeah, Cindy's saying on the chat, a lot of white men, mostly white men. There are some others that are not. I mean, there's Steve Chen and Yishan Wong and Jawed Karim there. I think there's some people who are not necessarily white men, but it's a lot of men, all men, isn't it? It looks like all men. And it's a certain kind of engineer type Silicon Valley man that you get. I mean, you've worked in Silicon Valley. It seems to have attracted a certain type of person. Yeah, I actually have worked in the medical device industry, not necessarily what one considers Silicon Valley. I've worked mostly outside of it in both geographically and in the types of things that they focus on. Although from what I understand, over the last five years and more, medical applications have become more pervasive in investment circles there uh, generally. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly with COVID, that's the case as well, but in digital health and that sort of thing. But yeah, I haven't actually 
worked in what I would consider Silicon Valley. I guess I was in Sunnyvale and, and a few other. But mostly they're sort of like heavily, they're mostly men. It's the situation yeah. has improved a lot in the last few years. They used to be mostly white men and Asian men. That's also improved in the last few years, but it hasn't dramatically yeah. changed yet. And, you know, it's funny that, not even funny, it's just sad really that the only big case that has come against a CEO of a company in Silicon Valley has been Theramos, you know, which is only, which is run by a woman. In fact, it's a pretty rare occurrence in uh, Silicon Valley. So, you know, it's probably not the most progressive of places. I guess when you put a lot of guys together in one place, they start acting like guys and thinking like guys and, Maybe they come up with rationales for how they can rule the world in a guy way that just makes no sense to everybody else. But, you know, it does seem like this has been the hotbed of libertarianism and has really uh, sort of changed the way our American political fabric is now and forever will be. Yeah. And just this is an obvious statement, but a lot of the startups, they lack HR functions and like typical things that would protect medium and larger size companies from that kind of behavior set. So it seems like it just runs rampant in those circles. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so we get to uh, Elon Musk's family because, you know, we want to go to the very roots of who he is and figure out exactly, you know, where he came from. The story is really fascinating. Uh, his dad is Errol and his mom is Maeve, uh, or Maeve as some, in some circumstances, but they were married for a short period of time. They were only married for, I think, nine years, but they had uh, three kids, I think. Errol is interesting because, you know, Elon does not say very many nice things about his dad. In fact, he's pretty negative on his dad. In an article in uh, the Rolling Stone magazine, I'll, I'll just quickly show you a picture of what Errol looks like so you can get a sense. This is Errol as he is today. And the words that I uh, have put on top of that, he'll plan evil. He will plan evil, meaning that he did plan evil. He planned a lot of evil. And Elon Musk really calls him out for it in this one article he did in the Rolling Stone magazine, where he said, there was another side of Musk's father that was just as important to making Elon who he is. This is a quote. He was such a terrible human being, Musk shares. You have no idea. His voice trembles and he discusses a few of those things, but doesn't go into specifics. My dad will have carefully thought out plan of evil. He says he will plan evil, which is just, you know, it's kind of incredible to hear someone describe their father like that. Besides emotional abuse, did that include physical abuse? This is the Rolling Stone. My dad was not physically violent with me. He was only physically violent when I was very young. Errol countered via email that he'd only smacked Elon once on the bottom. Very South African terminology there. Elon's eyes turn red as he continues discussing his dad. You have no idea about how bad almost every crime you can possibly think of he has done. Almost every evil thing you could possibly think of he has done. There is clearly something Musk wants to share, but he can't bring himself to utter the words, at least not on the record. It's so terrible you can't believe it. You know, I was blown away when I was reading that. I mean, I've certainly heard Elon Musk be blunt about some things, but this is a whole level of bluntness, which you, you know, especially about a family member, you would think it's a pretty unusual thing to him to, him to describe his father like that. And yet, obviously, some very painful history there. Yeah. I mean, you often hear about really high achieving individuals, and especially in the startup world that come from extremely difficult circumstances that overcome, you know, childhood bullying or, um, adversity with parents, but that's certainly the most extreme I've heard, you know, someone describe that familial relationship. It's pretty sad to hear mm -hmm. that, but also probably very complicated. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. His father had a very interesting track record. I don't want to say he had a crime record because I wouldn't be able to find that. But he has certainly was involved in some pretty unusual 
things. One of them was owning or partially owning a mine, uh, an emerald mine in Zambia. One like to own one of those. It must be pretty lucrative. But before we go and talk a little bit more about that mine in Zambia, I wanted to play a little bit of Errol, of Errol in his own words describing Elon Musk. He was talking to a radio station I used to work for in South Africa called Radio 702. Uh, Bruce Whitfield is the anchor, and he is having a conversation with Errol about his very famous son, and it all sounds pretty complimentary. So let's take a listen to what he has to say. He's always been a very deep thinker. When he was very small, for example, he would ask me, uh, where is the whole world? <laughs> good question. It's a very good you question. Know, yeah. I'm talking about when he was three or four. Yeah. And, 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 and these sort of questions uh, made me realize he's a little different. The Musk family lived comfortably in Pretoria, thanks to Errol's successful engineering business and his work as a real estate developer. According to Elon, his father has an extremely high IQ and is a talented electrical and mechanical engineer. Elon benefited immensely from his father's skill. Errol used to take him and his brother Kimball to his engineering job sites where they learned how to lay bricks, install plumbing, and put in electrical wiring. It was also Errol who introduced Elon to the world of computers. When Elon was 11, he insisted that his dad take him to learn how to use the new computers that had just come out. He was far too young to attend a course hosted at the University of the Witzwatersrand in Johannesburg, but his dad managed to book him a spot through his engineering connections. Errol recounted what happened when Elon went to that lecture. Anyway, he went and I left him there and uh, took Kimball and I went off to get a hamburger and we came back. It was a three hour long thing at Witz and we came back and everybody came out and nobody, no Elon. And we we waited and waited and then finally, you know, went into those chilly halls of, uh, of Vitz and uh, found this sort of sloping theater, lecture hall rather. And there was Elon with his jacket and tie off and his sleeves rolled up in his long gray flannels, you know, four feet high, talking to all these uh, these blokes from England. And... Um, and when I walked up to them, the one who some professor, he didn't even bother to sort of introduce himself. He just said to me, this boy has to have one of these computers. Anyway, we got him one of the computers and I got it as a discount, thank God. So that's Errol Musk talking to Bruce Whitfield of 702 in South Africa. That was my university too that I went to. I, you know, there's a lot of things in Elon Musk's life that I uh, am familiar with. I know a lot of those places. You know, we're not that dissimilar in age. We're just very dissimilar in our net value. I think he's <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's extraordinarily more valuable than I am. But you know, Vitz was the university. Someone's pointing out in the chat where I went to. It's very hard to say that university name. The University of the Witwatersrand. So it's shortened for Vitz. Uh, if any people want to, you know, if you have time, you research on this, uh, search my name with Radio 702 on the internet and you'll find all sorts of embarrassing things that I did when I was way too young as a radio DJ. But I digress. So, you know, he doesn't sound that evil to me. He seems like he's pretty, well, at least on the radio, he seems like he's pretty uh, well measured and is very complimentary about his son. But that's now and back then was a different situation when he was still uh, living with him and they'd just gone through that divorce. It was a bit messy. Uh, you know, so who knows what was going on in, in Elon's life as well. He was a young teenager when he moved out. I think it's often hard for men, particularly to verbalize when they have experienced abuse or extremely negative things. So it's, I mean, I would assume that that is, those are correct statements that he's making. You know, it's also very difficult for South African men to do this. I mean, I will say, you know, all men are the same, but South African men, especially Afrikaans, South African men, 
are very uh, tough, stout. You know, they don't talk about their emotions a lot and they will bottle them up a lot. And then, you know, one day it just pops out in, in probably not the best ways. But these are not touchy-feely, go-for-therapy kind of people. And maybe today, certainly things are different. But when I grew up in South Africa, the Afrikaners were a very tough uh, crowd. And he grew up in Pretoria, which was pre-Afrikaans, you know. It's just that it's the nature of the country and the position they were in, I gather, that made them like yeah. that. Jump in if you want to say anything else about that. But I think uh, if, if not, we could talk about the mine. Sure. Yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> okay. I'm not someone who really studies Silicon Valley people. I have never read, I don't even think, one book about any entrepreneur or yeah. anything. So I, I'm just speaking from you know the interactions I've had. You know what's really interesting is that Elon Musk is a voracious reader of memoirs and books about other massively famous figures. He, in fact, soaks up a lot of that information in another book, which we'll talk about a little later on. He's a big reader of how other famous people act, uh, which I thought was kind of intriguing because he's uh, pretty unusual. This is the story that sort of captivates everyone is because Elon Musk's father apparently has a big share in a emerald mine. That's okay. You know, he's an engineer. Maybe along the way, he got a good deal and he became a mine owner in South Africa. Except the emerald mine isn't in South Africa. It's in uh, Zambia, which is a little bit away from South Africa. And you have to sort of fly there. It's not the kind of place I would take my teenage son in the mid-90s or 80s on a plane that I was flying myself. But I guess Errol Musk and Elon Musk were different because that's exactly what they did in the 1980s. They apparently wanted to take a plane all the way from South Africa, from Pretoria there in the orange, all the way up to the top of Africa, to Saudi Arabia of all places. But then they realized that it was going to cost too much to land their plane in Mecca so they decided to not go all the way, and they were just going to wait their time in a place in Zambia. And when they landed there, they encountered wealthy uh, local businessmen who owned an emerald mine, and he wanted the plane. So he said, if you give me the plane, I will give you $80,000 or whatever it was, or 80,000 80, rand, whatever, for the plane. And they said, fine. And that's, in fact, what happened. They sold the plane for 80,000 rand. And then they bought the guy, said to them, you know, I'll give you half of my mine, if you give me 40,000 Rand back. And I guess Errol thought it was a good idea. Elon to this day claims this never happened, but clearly there was a lot of emerald mining and emerald trading going on in Errol's life because you know it just pops up in many places. And that, that is how they became a, a shareholder. Musk became a shareholder of a mine in Zambia. Now, this is an incredibly weird story to me because it's Africa and it's the 1980s and it was chaos and the, you know, the economies were tanking in all these countries. They had a huge, you know, the one thing that does rig true is that they had a surplus of these emeralds. They didn't know how to get rid of them because the market had crashed. But, you know, to fly your son, teenager, in your own plane into Africa would be the least likely thing I would suggest somebody to do. I mean, just, it's, you know, anything could happen on the way there and it would probably be not the safest thing. You know, obviously they became quite lucky because they were able to find this emerald miner who not only gave them a share of the mine, but was also willing later on to give them regular emeralds, which turned out to be quite valuable. So that is the emerald mine story. Although I must say, he, uh, Elon does deny that this in fact happened. And I don't know how he gets to deny it because it does seem to be verified in a lot of places. But he, I think what he's trying to say is that he arrived in the United States or in Canada, pretty broke, which is true. I mean, you had to, when I left South Africa, we were allowed to leave with 2,000 rand. That's all the, the government would let us leave the country with. And in his case, he was also allowed to leave with 2,000 rand because that's what, you, that's what you got to leave. And so that's how he got to be poor in Canada because that's when he arrived in Canada, he was poor. So that's the story around Errol and Elon. Any thoughts about yeah. that? 
Well, I think you hear people often criticizing about this emerald mind. I think geopolitically, there's probably much more complicated and sophisticated commentary that can be made than what people do online and the internet when they just, you know, throw emerald mine rocks. Mm. I'm sure there's a lot more complexity involved in that situation entirely. But, you know, it just would make me wonder, you know, people often, they like to throw that stone in a strange way online, I think simply because they're not successful. So you Mm. see a lot of people, you know, doing that. But then on the other hand, one wonders, how does someone go from nothing to the richest man in the world? What are the levers? That get pulled for that to happen. And I will say in South Africa, you know, for all its wealth in the 1980s and 90s, uh, a lot of the wealth did come from mining minerals. And a lot of that mining of minerals happened in the neighboring countries. And that's why there was such interest in South Africa from around the world. And in terms of, you know, whether apartheid stayed on or whether the there was going to be a change of government there is because it's full of so many rare earth minerals, you know, across that entire bottom part of Africa. There's just so much that it certainly rings true that he was an engineer and that he was involved in the mining industry. A lot of people were involved in the mining industry there. You know, the gold reserves there are incredible, diamond reserves. It's just that's how a lot of people became very rich in South Africa. So, I, you know, it certainly does not seem out of this world that he had a share in a mine. I think what strikes me as out of this world is that he didn't know he was flying a plane there uh, right. to, to, to pay for the mine. I mean, it wasn't, oh, we're planning a vacation. Let's pop over. Oh, accidentally, I got a mine. He probably knew well in advance that's what he was doing. You know, he was probably flying the plane to exchange it for half of the mine. But, you know, maybe that's not legal. Maybe he was flying the plane illegally or something. I don't know. It just that strikes me as that's probably more realistic, which means he probably had a relationship with all the infrastructure that creates mining in Africa. Africa is not the kind of place where everything is in a straight line. You go to knock on any office and they'll give you directions on how to do things. It's You sort of have to, you know, find your way to things. And in that case... You need to know people, and you need to know people who are either uh, connected with the local mob, frankly, or the local government, or the foreign governments that are there. And, you know, there was a lot of Chinese involvement in Southern Africa at the time, a lot of Russian involvement in Southern Africa at the time. The Germans were there as well. It is a very valuable place to go mining, and no one was going to give it up. The Israelis were there. There was just a lot of mining opportunities and a lot of profit to be made of. That's why the entire subcontinent was full of very many competing forces both local and international, competing for those resources. I mean, it sounds a lot like today anywhere in Africa, including West Africa with China and Russia and uh, the United States and all the countries vying for resources there. Same in Afghanistan. I'm sure anywhere there are rare earth in the world, that will be the case. Absolutely. And especially with the dot-com boom. I mean, we talk about, you know, where Elon finally lands up making a lot of his money. You know, he couldn't do it without the lithium that he needs and he couldn't do it without the for the batteries that he needs to create. These are the uh, the realities of, of all the nice things we have in the world today. A lot of the technology, we get to use it and we get to have it because these minerals are mined in all these parts of the world and, and that's where they come from. So it's not surprising to me that... Errol Musk, especially if his son describes him as being a, a criminal, that's what I think he described me in the Rolling Stone magazine, that he would have been done some shady things to, to get his hands on uh, some emeralds or what have you for his family. That does not strike me as being unusual in the slightest. Mm-hmm. I don't buy the story about the let's go on a vacation <laughs> to Mecca together. But, you know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Let's move on to mom. Mom is just as fascinating. Maeve, May, Musk is her name, uh, obviously not her maiden name. There they are in more recent times in the Vanity Fair event. She has become a model in her, she's 70 something now, and she's always been a model, but she has become a kind of an icon for older women who model in fashion magazines. I've met her. 
without knowing it's her. So I'll just say that out of, just to be clear that I have met her and she seems pretty interesting. Like she definitely believes that that's her, her place in life right now is to be a sort of a, a spokesperson and a model for older uh, women. And that is great. Nothing wrong with that, of course. What's kind of interesting about her past is her father, which is Elon's grandfather. And that takes you back to a whole different era. I'll just show you a picture of what the grandfather looks like. This, can you see this? Joshua Heldeman is his name. And uh, he is there pictured with his young family, one of these little twins down in the blue dresses here, in the light blue dresses. One of them is May. I don't know which one because they're twins. So I can't tell the difference. One of them grows up to, to marry Errol. And in 1971, they make Elon. Now, this is, guys, interesting because Joshua Haldeman came from Canada. And in Canada, he was part of this movement, which is kind of fascinating. I'd not known anything about it until yesterday or the day before, and someone told me about the technocracy movement. These are the posters of the technocracy movement. And in the 1930s and the 1940s, this was a big deal. They wanted to turn democracy into something of the past. They were more interested in a society ruled by technicians, people who are really good at their craft, people who are interested in you know, being experts in the field that they were and therefore could be experts in ruling their country. And that's how, what they wanted to do, create these whole councils and, these, uh, and a system of rule run by engineers and experts and technocrats. It was kind of a wild idea to be running around with as you know, World War II was raging, surely. And then you look at these posters and boy, do they just evoke a certain fascist kind of feel. Plus, they look very Chinese as well. So, you know, it's an interesting period of time in this whole movement. It did actually do quite well. I and mean, the technocrats actually, it became the real technocracy movement. It became quite a big thing in the 1930s and 40s. Yeah, it's interesting because this movement, I only fairly recently heard about it and was kind of very unsettled by it and what I read about it and the parallels that it has to modern day things like you know, Tim Draper trying to break up the state of California or Steve Bannon trying to deconstruct the administrative state. I was very alarmed when I read about it. And the first thing I can think of is, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a polymath and an inventor, a scientist and a founding father of our country. And none of these people are Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, I think your reference there to Steve Bannon is very astute. In fact, you know, when you really look at the uh, the core of what the technocracy movement was about, it feels a lot like modern day China, where they do sort of espouse this notion of, you know, technical expertise leads their way in everything that goes on in China. And it's sort of engineers are highly rated, and which is nothing wrong with that. Of course, engineers are should be highly rated, but they don't really have the same politics that we have here. They have a system that's built around getting shit done, if you don't mind me saying that word. Um, and so that's sort of where they were. I mean, I find this, uh, the post is kind of disturbing. I mean, they just look a lot like Chinese propaganda or Nazi propaganda. They looks to me like it's a swastika kind of hidden in one of these things. Uh, it's hidden, so you can't really see it, but it certainly looks like evocative of it. The main movement of the main symbol of the technocracy movement is actually the Tao. You know, it's a circle with the two, uh, I guess, bubbles in it. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's a disturbing thing to think that this was an actual movement. It was banned in Canada. In fact, uh, Mr. Haldeman, that's May's father, was charged in Regina in Canada for taking part in a technocracy incorporated event. And that's when he decided to take his family and move him back to South Africa, which is how we got to Elon Musk. So it's fascinating to me that there is this kind of background in Elon Musk's world because 
Here's, here's a quote from the um, manifesto of the technocracy movement. In contrast to the devious ways of politics, the fumbling methods of finance and business, we have the methods of science and technology. Modern common sense is now called upon physical science and technology to extend the frontiers of their domain. So, you know, when you look at the kind of thing that Silicon Valley has achieved, it's a lot of the stuff that these technocracy movements would have espoused. I mean, everything from Bitcoin to, you know, all this, whatever, whatever newfangled thing we've had in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of it would have been common sense, scientific evolution and sensible things. Even Uber is, you can think of that as being sort of a, a sensible engineered solution to a problem. In fact, everything in Silicon Valley is all about solving a specific problem, right? That's what you do when you pitch a company, you pitch a solution to a problem. So it's interesting that that entire Silicon Valley seems to have come out of this idea of this technocracy movement. And then Boy, imagine that. Elon Musk, who's like the poster child of Silicon Valley, is an actual uh, grandchild of the technocracy movement. That there is actually might be something much more fundamental in the way that he thinks about the world and about solving problems and about pushing technology the way he does than meets the eye. Yeah, one wonders like when they decided to start SpaceX and, you know, build an empire as Tim was one of in his firm or one of the, you know, early backers of Elon Musk. Did they know that ahead of time or did they find this out over dinner one day, 10 years later? It's did a really good question. It's a really good question. You know, he has had so much success that it's kind of, it uh, belies a common sense sometimes. But, you know, maybe he's just a very, very smart dude and very, very capable dude. And in fact, that might be the case. So you've, you've met the family. I do want to go back to PayPal because PayPal is such a, a seminal event. Now, if we all, you all use PayPal, I'm sure you use it at home. I use PayPal on a regular basis. It's a really convenient way to move money uh, from one party to the other party. In fact, it's a little like you'd imagine Bitcoin should be in that it's pretty easy to get, you know, transactions done. So, you know, I, I, it was bugging me so much that these three South Africans, because, oh, I should mention Peter Thiel, <laughs> I might be a little jealous here, but whatever. I'm just going to say this, you know, these guys are my contemporaries and I didn't get a piece of PayPal, but there's a uh, Peter Thiel, who we've discussed before, spent a lot of time in South Africa and Southwest Africa. His father, I believe, was uh, also in the mining business in, in Southwest Africa, mining for uranium. And so it's interesting that, you know, he spent a lot of time in that same region where, you know, Elon Musk was just around the corner. And as if that weren't enough, there's a third South African involved in the PayPal mafia. And that guy's name is Rulof Buta. Rulof Buta is not just, you know, Joe Schmuck who came off the streets in South Africa. Rulof Buta is the son of the son, so he's the grandson, of Puck Buta, which if you have a memory like mine, because you were reporting in South Africa, you'll know that Puck Buta was the foreign affairs minister of South Africa towards the end of apartheid. And he was also under Mandela, he was the head of, he's minister of mining, actually. And so, you know, Puck Buta was amongst the Afrikaners, amongst the National Party movement there. He was a uh, a really different kind of guy. He was very liberal compared to everybody else. He was less interested in entrenching apartheid. He really wanted to kind of get it over with. The guy that we always think of as Buta, the PW Buta, was the uh, really you know re reactionary right-wing leader of the South African National Party, and he did not want to end apartheid. But Rulof here is the grandson of Puk Buta. Now, it's remarkable. I got to tell you, it's really hard to leave South Africa. It's just hard to leave South Africa because it's far away and, you know, just getting, becoming successful anywhere else in the world is not that easy because you know, you're basically coming from nowhere. Nobody knows anything about where South Africa was. So for all these, for these three guys to 
pack up their bags and land up coming to South Africa, to America, and becoming instantly successful in the way they did is remarkable. And the fact that they did it together is insane. And the fact that they happened to own one of the biggest dot-com companies ever, at, certainly at the time, uh, that is actually kind of suspicious to me. That's where it begins to be a little bit, you know, you begin to think, well, how did that happen? How did these three get together in these unusual circumstances and start this company? And there's a little bit of a clue in the way they describe the company. And back then, this is how PayPal was described by Elon Musk and company. So this is not me making up words about PayPal. This is what they described it as. Now, they have different words for it today. But back then, they said it was, PayPal is committed to providing Chinese companies with world-class procurement expenditure management SaaS solutions. That's a software as a service, I think. Expenditure to actively respond to the trend and requirements of the country's supply-side structural reforms, adhering to the concept of saving as a service through deep professional insights and leading cloud computing. This actually might be a later because they wouldn't have called it cloud computing back then. But still, this is their description. This is the actual official description of PayPal. And it talks about servicing China, which is interesting. Certainly very interesting that it's, it's the main primary goal from their perspective was servicing China. Today, I'm sure you wouldn't describe PayPal as that. But the other interesting thing that was happening at this time, we spoke about how China was so involved in the mineral mines of South Africa, right? I mean, we, we spoke about all that lucrative rare earth material and needed to find a supply home and, and, and these people were mining it. Where did it go? It went to China a lot of the time because that's where they were making a lot of the technology that we all landed up consuming. You know, the VHS tapes and the Betamax and the early Commodore 64 computers and the Ataris, they all needed this rare earth minerals and they got them out of South Africa. So... It is interesting that there's sort of an intersection between Chinese rare earth supply, the mining in South Africa, and these three guys who obviously had connections to mining in South Africa because Elon, his dad owned an emerald mine, uh, Peter Thiel, his father worked on a uranium mine, and Rolof Butter, his grandfather, ran all of mining in South Africa. So it certainly feels like, boy, there's, there's something there. So what happened in March 1999 that was so curious? Why did this particular time period become a period where you might need to move a lot of money from one part of the world to another part of the world without any, a lot of people noticing? And the simple answer is that that is when Nelson Mandela announced he was retiring. He had finished his first term in office. He was announcing that there was a second election about to take place. And the guy next to him there, Thabo Mbeki, was going to be the president of South Africa. Now, you, I love Nelson Mandela, like you can't believe, because he's one of the most incredible people you ever meet. And he's just remarkable in, in so many ways. He was able to unify a country and apartheid to change the world single-handedly. He is a singular human being that you can't really compare him to anybody else. The guy on the right, Thabo Mbeki, is not Nelson Mandela. And I know Thabo Mbeki, too. He's also a really nice guy, well-educated, came from the UK, you know, very erudite for South Africa, but definitely not the kind of leader that was going to be Nelson Mandela or anything like that. So what you landed up in is with a lot of panic in South Africa. You know, there is a, everybody loved Nelson Mandela because, you know, there's just one Madiba, you know, there's no one like that. So he gave everyone a sense of confidence and he just was able to serve as just one term as president, which is obviously a real shame for the country because after Thabo Mbeki came Zuma and, and the whole place went into a mess. But my point there is that there was a lot of panic at the time, and that led to, I just know this from my own personal recollection, to a lot of capital flight from South Africa. There was, you know, I think if you look at this chart, a couple of points where it was up at 15 to 10% of GDP between 1987 and 2000, so a lot 
of money just leaving the country. At some point, I think someone had done a calculation that was like almost $300 billion, which is, you know, South Africa is a tiny country in Africa that didn't have that many resources to be flowing out. And certainly if you're a white South African at the time, you were trying to move your money out of the country. It was what people were doing because they were worried about the future. And so it's interesting that right around this time comes these three South Africans with a company called PayPal, which is known <laughs> for moving money around the world sort of seamlessly. And at the time actually had a huge fraud problem. It was really difficult at the time for uh, the folks at PayPal to follow the, all the transactions. There were so many and they, they, things were just getting labeled, whatever they got labeled. They didn't know how to count for all this stuff. You, they had no idea whether the people were moving drugs or money or whatever through their system. And uh, it became a big problem for them later on, which they then attempted to sort out. But, you know, at like, the time. road before Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's a lot like, where's Bitcoin regulation right now? Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need it right now. Because guess what's happening with Bitcoin? It's the same thing probably likely happening with PayPal. And there's no surprise that Elon Musk is, is a huge supporter of Bitcoin. So... You know, uh, th this, when I realized this today or yesterday, I was like, holy moly, look at this chart. You know, I'm not saying these guys were doing anything untowards or, uh, you know, illegal. We couldn't say that, but they may have inadvertently facilitated something, maybe not so inadvertently facilitated big transfers of cash, certainly around the world, but also out of South Africa uh, at a very interesting time. Now, I didn't know about PayPal back then. But I bet you they knew people who knew about PayPal because they would tell them about that. So, you know, it wasn't that easy to get money out of South Africa back in the 2000s or before 2000. So yeah. that's the whole thing, I think, about PayPal. I mean, I haven't seen this anywhere else. So this is my uh, adding 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2. But it does seem to add up to me. Yeah, no, it's it's a remarkable graph. And um, it certainly reminds people of situations that are happening all over the world today. There's a balance of human rights and people get who the people who suffer when there are sanctions are often, you know, just the people that live in a country, not the people running the country. So, but on the other hand, there's an extreme amount of corruption and crime and money laundering that happens. And uh, the balance of dealing with those two things doesn't look great in things like Silk Road. So I can imagine at an early day of this, that it was mayhem. Yeah, I mean, look, not to take away from these three really brilliant gentlemen who did a lot of wonderful things and clearly still do, there's a piece of this that seems to be unknown and seems to be needs to be more investigation. You know, there, there was certainly a lot of um, dirty money that flowed through PayPal, a lot of it. And, you know, not knowing where it came from, even until this day, is challenging. But I also think, you know, we can't allow history to repeat itself because, as you point out, crypto is here. It's doing exactly the same thing. It's got this giant sucking sound that's pulling dollars out of the American economy daily. Millions and millions and millions of dollars are being sucked out of America. We don't know where it's going because it's yeah. an unfamiliar system and because it's unregulated. And while we sit around here and try to figure out, hey, let's, uh, how do we regulate this stuff? You know, maybe we should just not have it because it's not good for us. And it's probably taking a lot of money away from the country at a time when we really need it. Yeah. Well, and it also um, is extremely unsettling the fact that Tim Draper, who is the early and continued proponent of Elon Musk, uh, the only person he seems to defend more than Elizabeth Holmes is the founder of Silk Road. Right. It was really interesting, isn't it? And the countries are all involved in all of these, you know, it's not when you look at two who was... Behind the coding, the engineering of X.com, which is Elon Musk's company, a lot of Chinese engineers there. There were some Ukrainian engineers, some Russian engineers involved with Peter Thiel. You know, it's Israelis really sort of had their fingers in there somehow, I'm sure. It's, yeah. it's just, uh, you know, 
it's not hard to see that it's the same countries doing the same things over and over again. Uh, and maybe right. they have reason to, but you know, ours, our job here is to make sure that you know about them and that uh, we try to avoid making these same mistakes again, because it certainly seems to me like whatever South Africa was going through in the 80s and 90s is very similar to what the United States is going through right now and certainly what democratic nations around the world are, are facing. And, uh, and we should uh, you know, learn from that because there's lots of lessons there. Yes. Kerry, thank you for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Next time, you're going to get to talk a lot more than me because we've got so many other things to talk about. But uh, this is a good first take at The Secret Life of Elon Musk. Uh, this will be an occasional series. So I don't know when the next episode is going to come, but you can sense that there is a lot of fertile ground in Elon Musk's life. And we have lots of leads. You might have more leads you want to share with us. We're going to keep looking at who this guy really is. You know, who is he and how did he achieve all the wonderful things that he's achieved? And is he, uh, is he acting in our best interests? All of that will be revealed in future episodes of Narrative TV. Thank you for being here tonight, everybody. And thank you, Kerry. And have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.